Please turn me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. When you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for a time of prayer following. Hello. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Good morning. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today and thank you for another chance to join and honor your name. We praise you for a wonderful song sung by Josh and just a great message given by him. We pray that you lead Chase to just give what's on his heart and get out of the way of the Lord's, uh, like the, what the Lord needs, like Josh was saying. And I just pray that we all can take something from some part of this service and just run with it and share it and just put it in an aspect of our lives. And we just praise for your forgiveness and just pray that you be with us everywhere we go. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all. Last week, I actually spoke to Josh, and he said, I would hate to have to get up there and do what you do. Well, I think he did a great job. Years ago, there was a man who wrote an article to his local newspaper and letter to the editor section. And he said, you know, I just don't see the point in going to church. I have been a faithful church attender for over 30 years, and I just do not see the point in in doing it any longer. He said, I've heard my pastor preach thousands of messages, and I've probably heard him repeat himself dozens of times. And for the life of me, as I sit here writing this, I cannot think or recall a single thing that he's ever said. And for that reason, I just don't see any point in it. And I believe the pastor's wasting his time too, because there's just no sense in it. Well, a few months went by, and another man wrote an article, it's a letter, of the, letter to the editor section, and he said, you know, I've been married for over 30 years, and he said, I've been faithful to go to work each and every day and provide a living for my family and my wife. And he said, every night I come home and my wife is faithful to prepare a meal for me. And he said, you know, for the life of me, I can't recall the full menu of anything that she ever prepared. She said, but here's what I do know. She said, the meals that she prepared for me gave me physical nourishment for the next day. And if it wasn't for my wife, I would be physically dead. And in the same way, if it wasn't for my church and my pastors, I would be spiritually dead. Now, obviously... The church should not be the only place we're getting our spiritual nourishment. 
I've often told people who feel as though they aren't being fed at church that if you only sat down at the supper table once a week, you'd be awful hungry the next time supper came around the following week as well. However, we do need the church for growth and for fellowship. So spiritual maturity is what's being addressed here. And the man who was attending church was not spiritually mature. John is addressing his readers according to their levels of spiritual maturity. And I often think about my spiritual maturity, and I hope that you do as well. You see, each day we should be making progress. We should be making, taking steps forward. And sure, there may be days where we take a step backwards, but overall we should be able to look over the course of our spiritual walk and we should see progress. So as we look at these passages of the different stages of life that are mentioned, they will no doubt cast images in your mind. We must understand that these images are not of physical growth, but they're pictures of spiritual growth. I am writing to you, little children, in verse 12, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Little children, John begins addressing here. Keep in mind, he's not addressing little children in the sense of how we might think of little children. John is actually addressing the entire church, every single person who bears the name of Christ, those born of the Spirit of God, born into the family of God. Remember, Jesus Christ himself said this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John is addressing each of us here. He is addressing the entire church. He is addressing the family of God. Within any church that you visit or any church that you belong to or any church that you even know of, there will be varying degrees of spiritual maturity. At one time, every single person in this room was little physically. We eventually grew and we developed. The same thing is true of us spiritually. We all begin as little children. The difference is we cannot as easily see spiritual growth as we can physical growth. There are young children in this very room who are both little physically and spiritually. At the same time, there are Christians who are older but may still be very young spiritually. Yet again, there may be students who are very young but are very mature spiritually. This, however, goes a little deeper still. The Greek word for little children in this passage is technion. It quite literally means those who are living in full dependence of the Heavenly Father, relying on Him in glad submission. Little children in this passage is easily read over. However, after carefully reading this text, we understand how this illustrates how we should live in utter dependence upon the Lord. This is literally illustrating the childlike faith and willingness of following and submitting to the Lord. It's an attitude and heart gladly and willingly submitting to the Lord. Think about that for a second. Think about a little child. You're crossing the street. You're crossing a parking lot, and you say, take my hand. And they reach up, and they take hold of you. They're willingly submitting to you, most of the time anyway. <laughs> this is how we should respond to the Lord. We should gladly submit to him and follow him. Since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name... Why should we gladly submit? Because our sins have been forgiven on account of his name. There is no other name by which sins can or will be forgiven. Not only have our sins been forgiven on account of his name, but it is the only way by which sins can be forgiven. People say that is so narrow-minded. Only one way? Get out of here. There's many ways. No, sir. No, ma'am. 
there is one way. And I'll tell you, it is narrow-minded. It is narrow-minded. The truth is narrow-minded. If I told any one of you in this room today, I said, you know what, I want to call you after church today. I want to talk to you. I've got something that I want to discuss with you. And you gave me your telephone number. And I go home and I go to call you. The only way to get a hold of you is to dial the number that you gave me in the exact order. I can't go home and just randomly dial numbers. I'm either going to get a hold of no one or get a hold of some random person. And I can't go home and take the number that you gave me and rearrange the order. The only way to get a hold of you is to dial the number that you gave me. And likewise, the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Yes, Christianity is exclusive. The the truth is exclusive. We worship a risen Savior who claims that no one can come to the Father except through him. I want to point out something to you really quickly. Think about someone that you know needs Christ. Think about someone right now in your mind that you know needs Christ. They need the Lord. Are they actively on a pursuit of truth, or are they living in such a way that's apathetic or even hostile to the Christian faith? Chances are they're living in such a way that's either apathetic or hostile to the Christian faith. Because if they were actively pursuing truth, they would find Jesus Christ. Now, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual walk, you will never be more saved than you are right now. Growth and spiritual maturity are not what is required for salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, I mentioned a little bit of it last week. It talks about the differences in glory, but as a child of God, you are saved and you can rest assured in that hope. This is something to rejoice in. If we can't rejoice in that, there's something seriously wrong with us. Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. Fathers and young men here is a different Greek word than little children in verse 12. Obviously, he's still talking to believers, but he says, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. The Greek word for know here is gnosko. Gnosko means and refers to an intimate and personal relationship produced by fellowship. We can understand this very well. I'll give you a a scenario. Years ago, when I came on as student pastor, many of the students, both current and former, they knew who I was. I worked with the students for years prior to that, but they didn't know me. Prior to that, I wasn't their student pastor. I came on, I got to be their student pastor, then they got to know me. But prior to that, there was a little bit of apprehension. Will he like us? Will he care? Will he stay? How will he act? There was some apprehension, but they got to know me. So I was their student pastor, but there was still an area where we had to get to know each other more personally, more intimately. Have you ever heard the saying, my wife has been married to five different men and they've all been me? (laughs) We're all constantly changing and we get to know each other more and more intimately. In the same way, once we are saved, we know Christ. Thankfully for us, God is unchanging. He won't leave us or forsake us. We are his. We belong to him, and nothing can ever separate us from him. He has us firmly in his grasp. As time progresses forward, we get to know him more and more intimately and more personally. As we grow in our relationship with him, we should develop more spiritual maturity. We should grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. There's something else to be said of fathers here in this passage. Just as there are little children spiritually, there are fathers. This is not to exclude mothers. This is talking about spiritual maturity. This is simply that term for that spiritual growth. There are giants here of the faith that I mentioned last week. And I'm so thankful for you. 
Those who have spent years in the Word, learning more about their Creator and growing closer in their relationship with Him, thank you so much. To you younger Christians, this is not something that just will magically happen overnight. To know Him is not simply speaking of our intellectual head knowledge of Him, although that is an aspect of it. There are people who study the Word of God simply for the fact to try to disprove it. Don't believe a simple thing, it's, a, a thing it says. They learn and study it to try and disprove it. So this is speaking and referring to a depth of fellowship and relationship with Christ. You will notice beginning in verse 14 that John now says, I have written to you children, I have written to you fathers. This is simply a style used to convey emphasis by using repetition. Verse 14, I have written to you children because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. He is conveying emphasis by using repetition. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. So we've hit on little children or the spiritual babes in Christ, and we've talked about fathers or those spiritual giants in Christ. Now let's discuss the young men. You young people, maybe those of you who just graduated, maybe you young families, you young parents, you're no longer little children, and you're not yet fathers in the faith. These are frontline workers, the ones who are doing a lot of the legwork, now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that young Christians have no responsibility. It doesn't mean that you older Christians can just sit by the wayside. Your wisdom is important. You're valuable to us. Your guidance is desired, and you should be cherished. You older folks, your wisdom should be cherished and desired, and we, uh, we thank you for that. We thank you. I thank many of you who've helped mold me to who I am today. But think about war, about battle. We don't send our little children to war, and we don't send our elderly folks to war. You send your young men. This is the area that, that, that requires the greatest cost, the greatest effort, the greatest strength is required from our young. You know the problem with most American churches? We've grown lazy and complacent. There are many people who, because of what is required of them, have just decided, you know what, it's just easier for me to stay a spiritual adolescent forever. It's just easier to stay here. They have the mentality, whether consciously or subconsciously, that I don't want to put forth the work and the effort required, so therefore I'll just stay a spiritual baby forever. Now don't forget you're saved. You can't lose that. But God will never leave or forsake you, but more is required of us. More is required of us. So this is not a pass for new Christians to sit and do nothing, and it's not an exemption for older Christians to say, well, my time's over, I've paid my dues. It is a call, however, for mo the most work and the most effort and the most labor to be put in by our younger Christians. We've got to get to work. So what are we doing to make an impact? What are we doing to reach others? Are we just going through the motions? Are we actively taking strides to further the kingdom of Christ and overcome the wicked one? So where do you consider yourself today? Keep in mind that we're not discussing your physical age. You could be much younger and pretty wise, or you might also be very mature, but maybe you're a new physically, but you're young spiritually because maybe you just came to know Christ, or maybe you've never had somebody disciple you and come alongside you. Again, age is not the primary factor here. If you consider yourselves to be one of those younger ones, as being discussed in this passage, then are you putting your strength to use? We all have to be a part of that process. Now, keep in mind we have to be cautious here as well. We can't sit here and think, I'm definitely one of those father figures. I've got it figured out. 
I could teach them a thing or two. I've got so much wisdom, so much knowledge. They just need to listen to me. If that's our mentality, then we might be much more of a spiritual infant than we think. I've got a story to tell you that will perfectly relate to this. And I'm going to tell it because the individuals that it happened with are no longer here. So, <laughs> years ago, we had a prayer, I had a prayer card that was given to me. It's been probably three years ago. I had a prayer card that was, and, and that goes to show you, we're faithful to pray over those prayer cards. So if you'd include your prayer request, we'd appreciate it. I had a prayer card that was given to me with no prayer request on it. It was a note that said, call me, I need to talk to you, and got their number. So I called this individual, and they said, you know, I couldn't help but notice I was sitting there in church, and one of the youth was playing on their phone. And they were distracting. And you know what? At that age, they ought to know better. They ought to know better than to sit there in church and play on their phone. And, you know, I, I sat here and listened to, to being chastised a little bit. And I, I graciously responded. I said, yes, sir. I, I said, I will, I will handle it. I'll take care of it. The next week, as I kind of dig into it a little bit and I discover what's going on, I figure that it's actually much more innocent than what was being portrayed. And, you know, I can't help but think when I found out who the young man was, no father figure in the home. None whatsoever. No father figure. Mother, to my knowledge, had never walked into a church. He wasn't made to go to church. He was here. Thank the Lord he was here. He was here in the word of God. And you know, I can't help but think if maybe that individual was a little bit more spiritual mature, they would have went around that young man, put an arm around him and said, you know, listen, I, I just, I, I couldn't help but notice you were on your phone. And, and I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you were on the Bible app, but, but I want to give you this Bible. And I want to let you know, if you ever have any questions or you ever have anything you want to talk about, that I'm here for you. But no, instead it was a note passed around, you should know better. You need to know how to handle this. You should do this. Rather than looking at our spiritual growth from a comparison perspective to other people, we should look within ourselves. Think about when you first came to Christ. Now, think about your salvation experience. When you recognize that you were a sinner, your need for a Savior... Now, it doesn't matter if that was 50 years ago or six months ago. How have you grown since then? How have you looked and seen the spiritual battles and obstacles that have been in your life that you've overcome with God's help? Where in that time frame has he worked where it was unmistakable that it was God? Where he orchestrated and moved things and you know it was him. We should be able to see some of that. When we do this and we evaluate our walk with God, we will realize that the more we grow, the more growth we require. The more we grow, the more we recognize and have an understanding of how inadequate we are. We recognize our need for him and we should have even more dependence upon him. Remember earlier we discussed little children living in full dependence of Christ. As we continue to grow in our spiritual walk, we don't become less dependent on God. We recognize even more so that we require full dependence in him. In doing that, we recognize that we have one commonality. We all share the same faith that needs to be cultivated. Remember last week when we discussed this a little bit? And now we have a new nature in Christ. Those who are saved, we have a new nature. The old nature has died, but it's up to us to starve that old nature and nourish that new nature. You know... We all have a habit of comparing ourselves to others. We do. Every one of us does this to some degree. We, have, we think we have it figured out. We've overcome. We're God's superstar. 
we think we are good people. And we, when we compare ourselves to others, we are pretty good, aren't we? We can always find somebody who's worse. We can think, man, you know what, According to, compared to them, I've got it going on. I'm in a good place. God sure must be pleased with me in my efforts. When we compare ourselves to him rather than others, we recognize how sinful and unworthy we are, how holy and worthy he is, and how undeserving each and every one of us are to his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. I want to show you just how unworthy we are. I'm not going to make you turn there because because of Josh, we're now going to run over. Second <laughs> Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 says this. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. Now hang on just a minute. You mean to tell me God struck him dead for touching the ark of God? He's simply touching it? It was commanded that no one touch it or they would die. But his intentions were good. I mean, it says that the oxen stumbled and he prevented it from falling to the ground and hitting the dirt. He had pure intentions, right? I mean, think about something starting to suddenly fall. You're going to reach out and grab it too. But he made several errors. First of all, this was more than just a reflex. He made the critical error in thinking. He, he didn't think it mattered who carried the ark of God. He didn't think it mattered how it was carried. He made the error of thinking God couldn't take care of the ark himself. And he made the error of thinking that he was more holy than the ground on which he walked. Think about that. Do you know we're not more holy than the ground that we walk on? The ground obeys God. You and me don't. We turn to our own way. We turn to our own devices. We forget about God and turn our back on him, don't we? So rather than compare ourselves with others, we need to compare ourselves to a righteous and holy God who will help us recognize our dependence on him. In John 15, John, or excuse me, in verse 15, John shifts to a warning about the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Do not love the world. Hold, hold on a second. Now, John 3.16 says, For God so loves the world, so shouldn't we also love the world? Let's be very clear here. The world is not referring to the global earth or to humanity. The world, biblically, is made up of three primary components. The physical world, its inhabitants, and the world system in terms of functions and uh, operations and world systems. In other words, it's values, it's beliefs, and it's appetites. Let's be honest with one another. In the world in which we live, in society that we've been placed in, in the country in which we live, it's easy to see with the conveniences and experiences we enjoy compared to the rest of the world, it's easy to see how people could fall in love with this world, isn't it? I mean, doesn't the world try to buy our love with all the great things that it has to offer? I mean, I think about some great things out there that I really like and enjoy. I think there's some pretty cool vehicles out there. There's some unbelievable gadgets that make life very easy, don't, don't they? What about the influence and esteem a big pile of money gives us from a worldly perspective? 
There's a lot of status that goes on with these things. I think about those who are so-called social media influencers, and I think, what in the world makes them worthy of being an influencer? They, they don't have any traits that make them worthy of being an influencer. They are influencer because somebody told us we needed to be following them. They have a ton of money, and they showcase it. Is that what makes them an influencer? I don't think so. That's such a crock. That's nonsense. What about loving things of the world? There are things in here that we love. I mean, each one of you, you work hard. You enjoy going on vacation. Don't you love vacation? And some of you love going hunting and fishing. Don't you enjoy a break? Are those things in which you cannot love? No, that's not what, God, what John's talking about here either. Think about what Christ says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. For those of you who think that's not true, I tell you what. Men, go to your wife today and tell her, say, honey, listen, I really love you. I really love you and I cherish you and I care deeply about you. But I've met someone else. And I love them and value them and cherish them too. So here's what I've decided I'm going to do. I've decided I'm going to spend a week with you, and then I'm going to spend a week with them, and then we'll just rotate, and we'll keep that going. Now, first of all, I hope you know the Lord, because she's going to kill you. Okay? <laughs> but you cannot love both and be devoted to both in the same sense. You can't do it. You cannot do it. And the same thing is true when it comes to our relationship with Christ. It's the same type of thing. We cannot be devoted to Christ and devoted to the world. We cannot say, I love God and desire a relationship with him while also clinging to every earthly system and way of life we can. We do not belong to this world. We're just passing through. Amen. At the same time, we can't develop this elitist attitude either and just distance ourselves from the world. I feel like many Christians are guilty of this. We can't hate the world and distance ourselves from the world in the sense of, you know what, I'm just, I'm not going to evangelize. I'll tell you a story that I hope drives home a point on this. When I was in college, I had the opportunity, I was a, I was a server at Texas Roadhouse, which I actually really enjoyed. And it wasn't long after I came on to work there that I heard all the grumbling of people who would say, I hate, with other servers, I hate working on Sundays. They were very vocal about it. I, I hate working on Sundays. You know, all those Christian folks come in after church, and they expect the best service, and they tip the worst. And that was the common theme in the restaurant industry. Most people complained about that. And you know what? It didn't take long to discover that was actually the truth. It really didn't. And, that, and don't get me wrong. That's not everybody. I'm not just lumping us all into one category. But it was common to have a group that was, it was clear, it was evident they had just gotten out of church. And they demanded the best service. And they tipped the worst. And, and I get it. Everybody has various feelings on tips. I understand that some of you think, well, the restaurant should just, they should charge more money and pay them a living wage where they don't have to depend on tips. That's not the reality in which we live. Let me tell you something. We cannot evangelize a lost and dying world if we're going to a restaurant spending 50 or 60 or $70 and leaving a $2 tip. Because the world doesn't see that as love. We're not meeting that need. We, we can't do it. Now, it's great to leave a track. It's great to tell them about Christ. We've got to do it while also meeting that physical need as well. That's how we're going to develop and cultivate that relationship with them that brings them to know Christ. If nothing else, we should be some of the most giving people. Some of the most patient and loving to those who are serving us and helping us and everyone else we come in contact with as well. Whew, that's rough, isn't it? Think about where I failed in those areas. 
Verse 17, and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. This should be such a comforting verse to us believers. You see, as believers, we don't belong to the world. We are, however, at least here for the time being. We are a part of the world for right now. So we have to live in the world and operate within its parameters and within its systems, but the world is not our home. Imagine for a second that you're going to make an investment. Okay, I want to I I throw this out there. Imagine for a second you're going to make an investment. Go back 20 or 30 years, and you have the, you have the advantage of knowing what the market's going to do. So you go back 20 or 30 years. Let me, let me ask, is there anybody in here who would like to maybe invest in the Lehman Brothers? You know, they went belly up back in 2008, the financial crisis. What about dumping your life savings 30 years ago into Blockbuster? Anybody in here would like to do that? Yeah, I didn't think so. Now, what if you could go back to 2010 and, don't, and, and invest in Bitcoin? You know, Bitcoin didn't hit a dollar until February of 2011. So could you imagine? Now, and I realize that I, I, I don't have any money in it, but I've seen, I've seen what's happened and what's transpired lately. I know it's come down some. But this year, it's been over $60,000 for a Bitcoin. Could you imagine dumping $100 in it back in 2010 or 2011? It would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? What a great financial move that would have been. But it's all passing away. Think about the investment of your future. We have two things that we can invest in. We can invest in the things of the world, or we can invest in the things of the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand this. We are to be good stewards of the things God has entrusted us with. Money's not a bad thing. Money is a tool that we should utilize. One of the mis- most misquoted, misunderstood verses in the Bible is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. And people often say money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not true. The love of money is the root of all evil. When our love of money takes such a precedence over everything else and we elevate it above our relationship with the Lord, that's when it becomes sinful. So we have two things that we can invest in. We can invest all our time and effort and energy into the world or we can invest it in making a difference for the kingdom of God. So I want to show you an illustration real quick. One that I've actually seen before. This is not my idea. I stole it. But I want to show you something really quickly. It's pretty neat. Oh, hung up here. There we go. I want to show you something real quick. You see this tape here. And it may be difficult to see from all the way back in the back. But you see this tape. This tape represents our life. Okay? One day we'll get it out of there. (laughs) This tape represents your life. Caleb got out of the drum cage and moved it and trapped me. (laughs) This tape represents your life. And this duct tape right here represents, I don't know, 65 to 70 years of age. And then this blue part right here represents your retirement. Many times we work all this time right here to enjoy this little bit of time right here. And we forget about every bit of this which is eternity. Every single bit of this that just keeps getting trapped back there behind the drum cage. <laughs> and it just keeps going. You know what? I actually found this morning that had a couple knots in it. And I, this wasn't part of it. This is my idea. I said, well, I'm going to leave the knots because I think that'll represent everything that we thought we knew on earth that we get to heaven. And God's like, ah, you were completely wrong about that one. 
Church, we have several enemies. We have Satan who opposes us because we serve Christ. We have our flesh, which is our innate desires that are within us that we're born with. And then we have the world, which is the world system we have to live in and be a part of. The world system is flawed, ladies and gentlemen. The world system opposes Christ. Sometimes we as Christians, we defend the world system, the system in which we live, more so than we defend the cause of Christ. Let's be a church that does the will of God. I'll tell you something as I close this sermon. If we are a church that does the will of God and we evangelize this community, we are always going to be a church that has these three spiritual conditions within it. Do you know that? We'll always have those little children, those infants in Christ. We'll always have those young people who are growing in their faith. And we will always have those father figures who are the giants of the faith. If we ever fail to have those three categories in our church, then we failed as a church altogether. Because we should always have young people in there because we should always be reaching the lost out there. And as we bring them in here, we're going to bring in some of that new nature or old nature that they're needing to starve, but they're, they haven't quite figured it out yet. They need to be discipled. I'll tell you, closing right here, I'll tell you this. He doesn't even know I'm going, going to use him in a, in a sermon. But this past week, we play, we play church softball. And after the games, we get to get together with the other team. We pray and, you know, just have some time of fellowship. And this man, we were, we were talking, it's, another, it's a man here. And he said, you know, it takes men to make men. Amen. That's so true. It takes those followers of Christ, those men to make men, those ladies, you spiritual ladies, you giants of the faith who are, who are Proverbs 31 women, it takes you to make young ladies. That's right. It takes you pouring. It's too many times we think, man, you know what? I've, I've done my part. We need some of you spiritual giants of the faith to come alongside these young people and teach them how to be men and women of the Lord. I'm going to tell you, it's going to take a lot of guidance and patience to raise those spiritual infants. They need our nurturing. And if we cease to have those three categories of believers, we have failed to continue doing the work of the Lord. So let's pray.